You sound American. No, really? <laughs> Thanks, but um, I don't know why. Maybe because I play jazz. and Really? So you're just from here? I'm just from here, yeah. Okay. You sound very convincing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I've been practicing, you know. On a Friday morning around 10 a.m., I sat down in the Great Guild Hall to have a conversation with a very accomplished and deep person. At the time of the interview, Tarmo Peltakoski is 22 years old, but already has made a lot of noise in the European classical scene. He's a Finnish conductor, pianist, and a self-proclaimed Wagner expert, and a part of the YouTube generation. Recently, Latvian National Symphony Orchestra has partnered with him, and he's going to take the music and artistic director's chair within the organization. How many times have you been here? This is my third time. First I was here in January, actually conducting the orchestra. Then I came back in May for signing the contract and, <laughs> and press releases and all of that. And, and now I'm here for the third time because they're playing Tristan and Isolde. So, so my orchestra is playing my favorite piece, so I have to be here. Do you like what you hear? And Yeah, the orchestra played well and uh, I was just interested about the hall because I'm getting to know all the venues here in Latvia. I don't know anything yet. I only know this, the the Great Guild, but um, there are some issues currently, so I I, <laughs> I have to get to know all, all the places. And because I'm not sure yet where are we actually going to play most of our concerts. We have a bunch of great venues, and I think Cesis is one of the greatest feeling-wise. Did you like it there? Yeah, it was it was fine for for opera. I mean, they play in the pit, and and balance-wise, it was mostly fine. I mean, usually in even the greatest opera houses, it's a lot worse when it comes to the orchestra covering the singers. So it was actually fine. It's not really made to be an opera. No, house, no, no. So. But it worked well enough with that. A simple question. What is your favorite thing about music? Oh, I <laughs> I can't really answer that. Music is really everything for me. You should be asking, what is my favorite thing besides music, really? <laughs> That's a question I, for later. Yeah, but, I'm sure, I'm sure. But what, what am I supposed to say? Um, it makes me feel good or, yeah. <laughs> or what? For me, as a, I'm also a pianist, um, yeah. but I mostly specialize in jazz and uh, That's bright cool. music. And for me, my favorite thing about music is that I can just be in another world. That just lets me be somewhere else. Everybody can escape together in a, in a new place. It shouldn't be the same for you. It, it's something else for everybody entirely. That can be one thing, uh, escapism. Especially yeah. if so-called real world, if we want to call this that. If that's a horrible enough place as it often is today, then escaping is, is one possibility but also i think that sometimes actually music is far realer than the world we live in quotes and that's a far more metaphysical truer place to be than a place where wars take place and yeah and that could you elaborate a little bit about the truth that is in music or like in the way it's real well since we're talking about tristan And the Latvian National Symphony is playing it. That piece for me, it's 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 my entire world. It's it's my favorite thing in the world, as the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called it, the opus metaphysicum, the true opus metaphysicum of all art. 
he was looking for. And, you know, Nietzsche um, was a friend of Wagner's and kind of a almost an adoptive son. He was living with the Wagner's when he was young. But then he aggressively turned against Wagner after he wrote Parsifal. Yeah. And Nietzsche said that even Wagner bowed before the cross and then he started writing aggressive <laughs> essays against him. But still after that, he was looking for anything, any sort of artwork in literature or, or in whatever art form that could surpass Tristan, but he could not find one hmm. because it is the greatest of all. And that, that is what many, many people share including me, and that quote, the true opus metaphysicum. The key word really is Sehnsucht, uh, which is almost untranslatable. Yearning, it's usually translated as. Um, yearning for what? One of the greatest writers of the 20th century, uh, C.S. Lewis, was a great Wagnerian. Mm -hmm. He was a little kid, a bit like I was, when he discovered Wagner. He writes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, that his world turned upside down when reading the words Siegfried mm -hmm. and the Twilight of the Gods. And after that, the name Wagner became this kind of magical symbol for him. Right. And, and everything about that just completely turned in him, everything upside down. And f for Louis, the word Sehnsucht, which is so essential in Wagner's works, especially Tristan, but also Parsifal, also the ring, and the word Sehnsucht became very important for Louis. And he coined the term joy in English, which, which is not the same thing as, as he writes, happiness or pleasure, but it's, it's a different kind of thing. Right. Joy was uh, Louis's translation, so to say, of the German word Sehnsucht, a yearning for something else, something different, something not of this world. And at least for me and for many other people, the world, if you want to call it that, that Tristan und Isolde transports you into is far realer and more truthful than this reality that we live in, if, if that makes any sense at all. It does, it does. But I have a follow-up question then. You found Wagner and, and Tristan very early, right? How old were you when you first encountered? I was 11. I'm the YouTube generation. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I was searching uh, Siegfried and I found the, uh, a YouTube video. It's, it's still there. The last one minute and 58 seconds of, of Siegfried. And that was the, the very same kind of moment as it was for, for C.S. Lewis before me. Um, that completely turned my world upside down. But was it the music first that blew you away? Yes. Um, of course, then I became very interested about everything else as well. But it's I, I, I'm a musician. Of course, I've tried to learn things about theater and literature as well. But I'm, I'm not a playwright or an actor or, or a writer. I'm a musician. So even with Wagner, even with his Gesamtkunstwerks and all of that, uh, music comes first. As, as Bruno Walter, the great conductor, uh, a student of Mahler actually, put it that Wagner was his god and he wanted to become his prophet <laughs> after hearing the Tristan Prelude. That's a bit heavy, isn't it? I mean, if Wagner would be alive now to experience this kind of almost like a cult following of his, you know? Yes, but it is a cult following. Yeah. He's, well, I mean, the only composer, let's say, who has this sort of cult following. We all know about the Bayreuth Festival and the crazy Wagnerians. I'm one of those. 
these kind of Wagner believers. And no other composer really has that. Um, I mean, there are Mahler society, sure, but it's more <laughs> sophisticated and less creepy. Yeah, and more reserved, right? Yeah. Wagner has his own festival every year and these crazy people go there and, you know, sit in these really uncomfortable chairs for six hours. And yeah. In the hot uh, Bavarian, that's no problem because they're experiencing the greatest thing on earth. For me, it's really interesting. This phenomena of people observing him and his music as this entity, you know, that doesn't happen ever mm. really in other musics, really. Maybe in Korean pop, you know? That I don't know anything about. <laughs> okay. What I know is that they also have like a very strong relationship between the audience and the... Let's see 200 years later if they're still doing that. What is your guiding light, a direction that guides you when you encounter music or when you perform it? What are you looking for? I don't know, really. I mean, if if I do a piece with an orchestra, I just want to do it as well as possible there. I, I study the score and, and try to make everyone play it as well as they can, and I try to conduct it as, as well as I can. But studying the score, rehearsing the music, it's a very technical task. But what is the human element? What makes you you when you approach a piece and when you present it to the orchestra and then later perform it to the audience what do you want to bring into it fortunately now as music director i will have the freedom to choose what i do so that i will actually only do pieces with which i i have a personal connection mm -hmm. if someone would give me the pieces i'd had to do I probably would not have such a personal connection with them. And then it would not, let's say, feel so individual and so close to me. And then I probably wouldn't have much to say, maybe. Also, I mean, sometimes it happens that you don't know a piece, but then you're asked to do it and then you start looking at it and then you actually like it and then you have something to say about it or not. But when I can choose my own repertoire, then, of course, I only do music that I really love and what I actually have something to say about. I saw that you wanted to play Shostakovich and you wanted to play also Kaya Sariaho. Can you just elaborate a little bit about your connection with those two composers? Well, Shostakovich for this orchestra, Russian repertoire is really the basic repertoire. It's their bread and butter. As for Finnish orchestras, it's Sibelius and so on. And of course, that's continuing the tradition, really. I'm not sure whether I'm going to do Tchaikovsky at all, actually. I love Tchaikovsky, but let's see if we'll have <laughs> time for it. But that's that's the kind of, it's in the orchestra's identity. I am very close friends with Dimitri, let's say. I've for years already really researched him and his music and I, I feel very personally connected with him. And now I have to say that today, the world we live in, in this situation, nothing is more important than Shostakovich. It's specifically Shostakovich. And I don't need to explain that anymore because it's totally obvious. Kaya, uh, I know myself and her family and her music, I hope. <laughs> I, I want to bring Finnish contemporary music. I'll bring also music by Ezebeka Salonen, whom I also know. And we're also going to play uh, some Latvian contemporary music, Vasks and, and also something else. People I, who I have already met and will be excited to work together with Sarjaha and Salonen, for that matter, are not only for me, but for music lovers throughout the world, some of the most important contemporary names of composers. And I'm very happy that we're Finnish and, and I can bring their music here. Even for me, Finland is a very important place because uh, some of my favorite music comes from there. Mm. 
exactly those names you you already um, cool. mentioned, and uh, and also violinist Pekakusisto. Oh yes. And I just wanted to ask you, what do you think makes Finland such a special place that such great music comes from there? Uh, after Sibelius, you mean? I mean, of course, he's the monolithic, monumental figure, the unescapable great force. And my teacher, Jorma Panola, mm-hmm. <laughs> the teacher of all the Finnish conductors, including Esa-Pekka Salonen. And I mean, he's still alive. He's turning 92 this year. These figures are the most important in, in Finnish music. And the phenomenon, if you want to call it that, helps itself, so to say, because young conductors and composers as well are emerging all the time. I mean, I know friends of mine uh, younger than me who will become great conductors for sure and it's this tradition relatively new tradition Mm -hmm. there have always come conductors from finland that will continue because it's a community and they all know each other and they well i want to say that they all kind of also like each other (laughs) and want to help each other and it feeds itself right right it's a feedback loop right yeah That's something that Salonen would say. <laughs> yeah, of course. But what about nature? I have some Finnish friends that always mention that the nature and their connection to it is very important also in their work. Have you established a connection yourself with the Finnish nature, the landscapes and such? Obviously, everyone likes that. <laughs> um, the thousand lakes and, and whatever. With Sibelius, he's... Always when we talk about his music, we talk about his relationship with nature. And, you know, in the Fifth Symphony, which we're going to play in my first concert as, as music director. Uh, that tells how, how much that piece means to me. He saw birds flying and then he composed the horn theme and it's what the legend says and mm-hmm. that's what he wrote in his diary. And most people, me including, I have to say, have some sort of nature visions when hearing Sibelius' music. The truth is that he was rather an urban person. He was kind of a... He was just a guy who enjoyed hanging out with friends in bars <laughs> and, then the, and then wearing suits. And then he once in a while uh, went outside to his backyard and saw a bunch of birds and composed something and declared that this is the Finnish nature. <laughs> so it, Not too it, romantic, huh? No, he was... It's not exactly what people think it is. But that's always the case. Yeah. Legends um, form themselves, right? Yeah, mean? exactly. But then, of course, before composing the fourth symphony, he actually visited Goli, mm-hmm. the famous Finnish. Well, it's not really a mountain, but we call it a mountain. Of course, there's more to that. But yes, it's it's true what you said. I read in the same interview that you said you don't play or conduct for the audience. For whom do you do it? Did I say that? I do music because I like it. Because I don't know what would I do. Mm. As a conductor, I'm there only for the musicians. That's my only purpose. You know, when it comes to purely ideal music making, I wouldn't be there at all. (laughs) You know, no one would need a conductor. But somehow they do, and that's why the conductor is there. So I'm I'm there to help the orchestra, really. That's the conductor's job. And then I don't know what is their fundamental motivation to play music for everyone. It can be something different. Maybe because it's so different, that's why they need a conductor. Exactly, exactly. That's that, that, that's what it is. Now, I don't remember what I said in an interview two, two months ago, but that's what an orchestra is. It's it's a bunch of people. It's, it's a huge group of people. I mean, it, it's not... An instrument. I mean, the orchestra is not a piano that you can just play because they're living people. They're all different. They're all individuals. And that's why they need someone to unify their thoughts in one direction because otherwise it would be just a kind of eclectic chaos. (laughs) 
you see your position as directly related to the musicians. And then I could gather that your union between the orchestra and you, that's there for the audience or audience is just there to observe it. Well, during the pandemic, there was no audience. And for the musicians, it's at the same time the same thing, but it's also different. Mm -hmm. The atmosphere in the hall is, of course, different because there's no one there. But it's kind of more a, a psychological thing. But the music making itself doesn't change. Right. It's more of an issue for the audience and not the musicians because music is not supposed to be listened through streams, but in the hall, in the space, in this. If I've said that, that I don't do music for the audience, let me just explain it in, in, in a very short way. If I would assume that someone would automatically like or get something from what I do, I would be kind of selfish and kind of stupid. So I don't do that. So I just do what I do. Mm -hmm. People may like it. If they do so, great, I'm happy. But I can't assume that. And I've read it also that you like jazz. What kind of jazz do you like? Anything specific? Well, f first of all, I have to admit now, talking to a jazz musician, that I actually know jazz quite poorly. I mean, of course, I know something, but I'm, I'm not really an expert when it comes to jazz music in general. I have immense respect for jazz musicians because they can do things that uh, classical musicians cannot. But uh, I'm sure you know that I very much enjoy improvising. For me personally, I find improvising the most natural way to make music. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my most primal form, sitting alone at the piano and playing just by myself something. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is that usually when I'm just playing, I don't know what, it comes out as sounding like some sort of jazz instead of sounding like Wagner, for example. I really don't have any idea why is that, because I'm not an expert on jazz. I'm an expert on Wagner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that, 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 that's, that's a funny thing, and I have really no explanation for that. So you like improvising and uh, conducting is not so much about improvisation. Exactly. Yeah. But do you ever have a spontaneous moment when you're conducting? That should be able to happen always. And the better the orchestra, the more one can do that, and the bigger the chances are that, that it will succeed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with a bad orchestra, it would just be stupid and suicidal. Because if the orchestra doesn't follow or can't follow or doesn't want to follow and they're not sensitive enough to be improvising, then of course it doesn't work. But with a great orchestra who are sensitive musicians and actually making music in the moment, in the concert, and following the conductor and willing to try things and change things and just to be creative. That's the greatest thing, really. And it depends on the music. I mean, in a Wagner opera, it's not really the place to do it. Mm -hmm. But in a Mozart symphony, absolutely. Without it, it's, I mean, it's really dead. You also study composition, right? Yes. I mean, I didn't really seriously study it, but I've always composed, especially when I was younger. It's become less and less, but um, it's something I want to do kind of as a hobby, let's say. And for what do you write? My latest compositions, uh, last year I wrote two pieces, one for string quartet and one for piano and flute, so 
for for friends basically commissions from friends so if so if i'm asked i i might write something <laughs> sapeka also writes amazing music and then so i i can see a sort of through line that a lot of composers and conductors share the same viewpoints yeah i mean of course he's an actual composer <laughs> when it comes to him I and mean, he always wanted to be a composer but then he just kind of accidentally ended up being a conductor as well yeah <laughs> you mentioned some of the qualities that you really are looking for in orchestra their readiness to be able to be spontaneous but can you just elaborate a little bit in a utopian world what makes an orchestra a great orchestra well level of musicianship really and that's a difficult thing to explain technical skill yes but creativity sensitivity spontaneity and willingness to change things in performance and not just go according to the plan for me it, it always when someone can improvise it's a real sign of true musicianship and that's why i admire jazz musicians because unfortunately many musicians of western art music as we call it are just so i hope i don't offend anyone but but they're kind of close minded about being so truthful for the score Yeah, of course it's true in one sense, but everyone is told always just play what's in the score. Believe the composer, don't change that. Yeah, if you play Bartok, but if you play Mozart, that's an entirely different thing. And playing Mozart is actually the hardest thing and the most important thing because it's bare, it's pure, it's empty in the sense that you have to do something with it. Yeah. I mean it's not empty in the negative sense. It's the most sublime thing ever. You have to find it. You have to make it happen because a computer playing Mozart is just absolutely nothing. And when it comes to orchestra as a conductor, I have to say that of course it does matter what kind of people they are. There might be some conductors out there who don't think it matters, but we are all human and the musical result is definitely better if people get along. I agree. But just following along a little bit about the improvisation bit is that um I've met a lot of fantastic classical players who I know could improvise but are really deadly scared to do so. The only thing they need to do is just allow themselves to mm. play what's what's in their hands and what's in their mind and in their ears because they have already everything. They they know the music, they have the musicianship, they have the technicality to perform it. But it's just like a simple, maybe not so simple psychological switch, button, yes, which you have to press. Yeah, it's It's well said they're dead scared. I don't know why. Maybe it comes from basic education of musicians. You know, when a kid goes to a piano lesson when they're five or six or whatever. Here is the middle C and now you're just allowed to use these ten keys or, or whatever and oh the pedal, oh yeah, you can't reach it. So so don't even try. And these black keys, let's not go there yet. Maybe next year. <laughs> this kills creativity. I mean when a kid sees a piano what they just want to do is just kind of randomly hit everything and they're, they're, they're interested and they're curious. These are, what are these weird sounds? I'm doing this. It's, that's how everyone should be allowed to be. We're taught to be very perfectionistic. I mean, that's one side of it, but it's also dangerous and it's kind of often dull. Well, improvisation was a big part also for musicians in the Renaissance period, right? I don't remember where I read it, that it was said that you should be able to improvise in a half hour long impromptu before your concert, when the audience is coming in, like settled for the music. So that was very important 
way back, you oh, know? That's cool. So what I found is that maybe, maybe it's just one, one of the things, is that the recording came about where you can finally fix the music in a very fixed format. This is how it is. This is how it sounds. People started looking for more idealized versions of pieces, right? So they don't have that many places to be a little bit rough. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there is a difference whether I'm on Spotify listening to a studio recording or on YouTube watching a live performance. You see what I mean? The studio recording is, I believe that it should be that kind of idealized. Your really kind of final say, your absolute vision of how this should sound. But then, of course, if, if it's live, then things should be more interesting. <laughs> your role is usually reserved for people older than you, right? Do you find that you ever have to challenge some things to get things your way? Or do you find that your age in some way or some form is sort of like a barrier? Well, look, I only know my own life and it's what I've always wanted to do. I've always known what I want to do. And for me, it's natural. I mean, of course, I can torture myself and start thinking about it. That these people are older than me. And what am I doing here? That doesn't help. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And I've spent a lot of time already thinking about these things. And if orchestras want to have me, they can have me. <laughs> and I'm just happy I can do it because it's what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. And no one's ever said anything to my face that Go back to school, someone can write that, you know, in a comment in, in the internet, but I shouldn't be reading those anyway. But do you ever deal with self-doubt in any shape or form? Of course, because if one doesn't, if one is not self-critical, one doesn't learn anything. Self-doubt, I mean, I think it's the same thing, really. I never like anything what I do, because... If I did, I'd be dead already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the greatest conductors, the, the oldest conductors, 90 plus years, they are there because they've always wanted to learn more and they still do. And if that process stops, that's just fatal and very dangerous. Do you listen to your own recordings? Yeah, yeah, and I hate them. Do you take notes? No, no. It's just I kind of look, oh, what did I do wrong again? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't actually take notes, but I just think about things and you know also in rehearsal when I should be focusing on the orchestra sometimes it kind of occurs to me that maybe I should change something <laughs> instead of complaining to the orchestra yeah that's also that many conductors do wrong really blame the orchestra when they could be blaming this themselves in your busy schedule do you still find time for other things the music well now it's getting busier and busier there has never been much else than music really but now i haven't gone to school since last year so i unofficially quit <laughs> mm -hmm. I just won't go back anymore. And they know that, right? I'm not sure if my teacher for sure knows and my colleagues, I think no, but you know, the bureaucratic side, I don't know if they know, but if you're listening to this, <laughs> now the schedule is getting very busy and I know many, many years ahead where I'm going to be and I won't have many free weeks at all for years and I'm not sure at what point I'm, am I going to go crazy or not because this is what I've always wanted to do. And I'm just fortunate to be able to do it because I know that there are so many great musicians out there in the world uh, who deserve to be given opportunities, but they don't have those. And then equally, there are not so great musicians who are doing a lot of things, and I just hope I'm not one of those. Mm -hmm. We all hope that we deserve what we get. Could you give our listeners some uh, recommendations for listening, something that's been on your mind? Well, 
well. This year, uh, in my two first concerts as music director, uh, we're going to play music by Vaughan Williams, the English composer, who this year uh, turns 150 years. It's his birthday year. So that's why we are playing his music now. And he's always been a great figure for me. I discovered him when I was 18, maybe. And everyone kind of knows the name. I mean, you've surely heard of yeah. Vaughan Williams. Most people have, but do they actually know his music? Not really. And this is my recommendation for everyone. Please listen to Vaughan Williams. He's got nine symphonies. And I can promise to you, just listen to it. You will love it. And there's no reason whatsoever why it's not played. Because I truly believe in it. And that's why I'm willing to bring Vaughan Williams everywhere, really. And, and also after this year, we're going to play something by him uh, in the future. That's what I want to bring to the musical world. Outside the UK, where he's played a bit, but not that much even there. Finally, is there anything you want to share about your ambitions regarding the collaboration with the Latvian National Symphony? I've only conducted them once so far. We will have to get to know each other, and that's not a complicated thing. We will make music together and hopefully perform great concerts. I hope that people will be <laughs> happy to hear what we have to offer, and then during the years this relationship will deepen and we will get to know each other and I'm sure that is also something that can be heard when the orchestra and conductor know each other better. It can be heard and felt and certainly felt by us looking forward to that.